music stand holds up the weight of everything here. Well, good morning, Cascades. Uh, it's so good to be with you again. Um, you know, every time I've come to Cascades, I've just felt very welcomed. Uh, I really sense that there's a strong, strong family community here. Um, whenever I walk through the doors, I feel like people are introducing their, themselves to me. Uh, I'm getting to know more and more people. And so I just really appreciate this community. And it's an honor just to be back here uh, speaking with you all today. So I want to start. Did you know that 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about pornography with their friends? Did you know that most teens and young adults believe that not recycling is worse than pornography? Did you know that 68% of divorce cases involve one party meeting a new lover over the internet? And did you know the first exposure to pornography among men is 12 years old on average? Now that I've got your attention, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, 27 to 30, and I'm going to give a bit of context before I get there. So as uh, Alex was explaining, as a church, you've been in a series on the Gospel of Matthew for the last while and have been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount since the New Year. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus has pretty distinct communication style. Uh, in his ministry, he loves to drop one-liners like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also loves to ask questions of his followers, his skeptics, and those who come to him for help. He's a question asker. And he also likes to share short stories or parables uh, to communicate truth to his listeners. But in the Sermon on the Mount, we experience something much different. We get to listen in on Jesus' words for three entire chapters of Scripture. He goes on a teaching monologue for 107 straight verses. So he just goes on a rant. <laughs> Uh, but a helpful one. It's almost like Jesus clears his throat <clears throat> and says, all right, my friends, take out your parchment and your quills. I've got some things to share with you. Just a few kingdom insights I've got from being an eternal member of the Trinity. And line after line, he astounds the audience with truth that seems upside down to the world and an exhortation of love that does not fit within their categories. So Jesus opens his sermon with some marks of discipleship in the Beatitudes. I believe that what he's doing in those Beatitudes is he is spelling out, here's what a disciple of mine looks like, some of the things that characterize their lives. So he calls those who are poor in spirit, mournful, meek, hungry for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peaceable, and persecuted. He calls these people blessed. He's saying, here's the type of person that is after my heart. Here's the type of person who is in step with the Spirit and in step with the kingdom of God. He then declares after the Beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. In other words, you represent me to the world. Your life and your good works are meant to bring glory to your heavenly Father. So Jesus starts his sermon with some encouragement, right? Some blessings, some exhortation. He lays the groundwork for what it means to follow him. And he continues to spell out what his followers look like in our text today. 
But you may have noticed last week a pretty jarring shift. The blessings of the Beatitudes, the salt and light comparison suddenly took, suddenly look really far in the rear view mirror as Jesus starts likening anger to murder. Something so seemingly natural like anger is compared with something so foreign to us like murder. How do we make sense of this? Well, this morning we run into a similar teaching. Today, Jesus is going to compare lust with adultery. He's highlighting these issues at this point in the Sermon on the Mount because they are important ones in what it means to be his disciples and to be salt and light in the world. So I'm going to read the text in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. I would encourage you to follow along in your own Bible. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now I'm going to pray. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Here's my chance to run for the doors when he closes his eyes to pray. Let me just say, Jesus wants you to encounter him today and his grace, his love, his mercy. So let me pray. Lord, we give thanks for today, the day that you have made. We rejoice and we're glad in it. And God, we just pray that today as we dive into a hard text and one that can just be filled with so much shame, so much condemnation, judgment, uh, misunderstanding, misinterpretation, Lord, would you just illuminate truth to us, we pray. God, I pray that you would also just break down uh, barriers of, of shame and, and sin. And Lord, I pray that you would just communicate your heart to us today. Lord, that you come in love. You come to restore, redeem, heal. And so, God, I just pray that uh, you would just bring healing to many today. God, that you would just bring uh, a greater picture of who you are and the call to discipleship, but that your grace is with us, your spirit empowers us. And so, God, I pray that you would just be in our midst today as we journey through this text. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the blessings in disguise of COVID-19 is that we've had the opportunity to watch two sets of Olympics within six months of each other. How many of you guys watched the Olympics in the last six months? Okay, I prefer the Winter Olympics, primarily because Canada does better at those ones. But anyways, the Summer Olympics concluded on August 8th, 2021. And the Winter Olympics began on February 4th of this year. So within six months of each other, first time ever, I think. <laughs> How many of you um, have like a favorite event at the Olympics? Okay, I see some nods. Yeah, cool. It's pretty cool how the whole world can just be brought together for a few weeks as we cheer on our home countries. Now, one of the events that really intrigued me in the Summer Olympics was the high jump. Uh, did any, any of you watch the high jump, the, the finals for the men? Okay, a few of you. If you didn't see it, it came down to a showdown between two athletes, uh, John Marco Tamberi of Italy and Mutaz Barsham of Qatar. 
they were the only two who had cleared a height of 2.37 meters. And I was trying to like look at like how tall is that? Like as I was like preparing my sermon, like okay, like you know the doors are like six feet. Most like average ceilings are eight feet. Like that's that's like that's like taller than our average ceiling. Um, and they're jumping this like. Unbelievable. Anyways, they kept going back and forth, these two athletes, trying to clear 2.39 meters to decide the gold medal. But neither of them could do it after several tries. Uh, you know, they just kept going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, the referee calls them together and he says, okay, we can do one of two things. We can keep competing uh, to decide who wins the gold medal, or you can share the gold medal and both be declared champions. And so these people I actually learned after the fact, they're like quite close friends, and they decided let's share the gold. So first time I've ever seen that in the Olympics, they decided to share the gold medal in what was a pretty heartwarming moment. If you haven't seen it, maybe go check it out on YouTube, the men's high jump um, finals. And so these two athletes, they simultaneously became champions while also conceding to the height of the bar. Now here's the transition. This is essentially what Jesus is illustrating in our passage today. Jesus is reinterpreting the law for his listeners by raising the bar of what they thought the seventh commandment meant to its true intent, its intent from the beginning. And this is also what he did with the sixth commandment that you learned about last week with murder and how it's likened to anger. Now, if you glance back at verses uh, 17 to 20 in chapter 5 of Matthew, you'll notice that Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Not only have the Old Testament prophecies been fulfilled in me, but so too has the entire law. Not one iota or dot in the law finds its fulfillment apart from me. In other words, even the most obscure or tiny law that most people forget about is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. He mentions that even the least of the commandments must be obeyed, not relaxed as some made a habit of doing. He's basically saying what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So in other words, one tiny infraction of the law means we're unrighteous and need a savior. This is what Jesus is saying to his listeners. No one is able to obey everything written in the law, and Jesus knows this. But that doesn't stop him from saying this in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's basically setting up a hypothetical situation for us. He's saying, even if you were as meticulous as the scribes and the Pharisees in their observance of the law, and you were careful not to break one law externally, you've still broken the law because your definition of sexual impurity is too narrow. The bar of God's standard was at 2.39 meters all along. They just didn't know it. Jesus is saying that even if you've kept the whole law outwardly, it isn't solely about behavior. It's about the heart. Even if you've never murdered anyone, there's still anger in your heart. Even if you've never committed adultery, there's still lust in your heart. Jesus correctly reinterprets the Old Testament law by showing that it was about much more 
than behavior. It's about the heart. And this is why you need me, because I fulfill every law in deed and in heart. In a few sentences, Jesus destroys the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and levels the playing field. We are all guilty because our hearts are desperately sick and prone to wander. God cares about our actions, yes, but he cares even more about the condition of our hearts. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. In other words, our behaviors are a manifestation of what's in our hearts. So I want to ask you this morning, where is your heart? Where is your heart? The Pharisees understood righteousness as meticulous behavior based on technicalities. They missed the whole point of the law. It's not about outward action, but inward transformation. This is why in Matthew 23, verse 24, Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel because they neglect the weightier matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, the whole point of the law, while scrupulously following the letter of the law. They're just uh, careful to appear righteous and do all the externals, but they've missed the, the heart. They've missed the point. So... In, in the context of that verse about straining a gnat, rabbis would strain wine to remove small, unclean insects like gnats so that it would be pure. But Jesus is saying that they've done that while consuming the largest land animal in all of Palestine, the camel, which is also an unclean animal. So can you imagine how offensive that would be? You strain out the smallest unclean insect that you can't even see with your eye, and yet you consume the entire camel, largest animal in all of Palestine, which is also unclean. <laughs> now, the thing is, it's easy for us to look at the Pharisees and see their hypocrisy so clearly. Like, wow, like they really missed it. Like, wow, how could they be so legalistic? How could they be so pharisaical? But let's examine for a moment how we can be pharisaical in our approach to sexuality. How do we strain gnats and become legalistic? Well, we push the lines rather than create margin. If you're not married yet and you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, the thinking can be, if it's not intercourse, it's okay. Or we're in love, so it doesn't matter what we do physically. Or if it's not nudity, it's not porn. If I don't search it out, God can't blame me if I look longer than I should, right? I'm just at the beach. I'm just at the BC Lions game. It's just an intimate, romantic scene in a movie. Oh, it just popped up on my social media feed. I just accidentally, on purpose, went to the search feed, and it was there. It's just Game of Thrones. It's just the flyer that came in the mail. It's just a romance novel. I'm not harming anybody, it's just I'm going about my day. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And let's add two more legalistic justifications to the list just for the heck of it. Some might say, the text says anyone who looks at a woman, not anyone who looks at a man. or the text is talking about married people, not the unmarried. 
this is Pharisaic thinking. This is what they were guilty of, and Jesus was trying to point out. And this is why we need to understand what Jesus actually had in mind when he talks about lust and adultery of the heart. Scholar uh, John Stott, in his commentary on Matthew, he comments that Jesus' teaching here in our text uh, is that any and every sexual practice which is immoral indeed is immoral also in look and in thought. Sexual behavior and thought outside of God's design for human flourishing can be summarized in one Greek word. It's called porneia, which is where we get our word pornography from. And so this includes fornication, sexual immorality, adultery, etc. Basically, any unlawful sexual expression outside of the marriage covenant, whether by married or unmarried people. And so the point of Jesus' teaching here today is that while physical purity is important, it must be an extension of a pure heart. Righteousness, according to Jesus, is a state of the heart from which behavior flows. So we cannot say we're following God's law if we sleep in the right bed but lust over every attractive man or woman we see walking down the street or at our workplace or on the TV or on our phones. And King David from the Old Testament, he understood this when he asked the question in Psalm 24, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And the answer is, he who is without deceit, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, Jesus says in the sixth beatitude. The impure in heart see people sexually. The pure in heart see God. And I would say even the inverse is true. If our eyes are on God, you'll have a pure heart. If you've trained your eyes to objectify people, your heart will be impure. So we have to ask the question, what am I letting into my heart? Where is my heart? Let me talk to you about the major way we objectify people in our culture for a moment, which is pornography. Porn objectifies both men and women, but it largely degrades women and turns them into objects for men's pleasure. In the vast majority of cases, it is the men who are dominant in porn, not women. But some streams of feminism will say that porn is a way for women to be liberated and empowered through their bodies and sexual power. Let me tell you, there is nothing empowering about pornography for women. If you knew the amount of women in the porn industry who are coping with alcohol and drugs to numb themselves from the pain and the shame they feel by being used and abused by men, you would know it is anything but empowering. Not to mention the PTSD and mental health toll it takes on women, with many of them suicidal. Let me give you a few stats on porn. Approximately 35% of all internet downloads are porn-related. Porn sites receive more monthly traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Porn is a $97 billion industry, with as much as $12 billion of that coming from the U.S. alone. 64% of 13 to 24-year-olds, this is males and females, this isn't just a male problem as is sometimes the habit of thinking. 64% of 13 to 24-year-olds intentionally watch porn at least once a week. 
88% of porn films contain acts of physical aggression. The list can go on. Porn affects the brain like a drug. It normalizes the objectification of people. It hurts relationships and marriages. It can impact mental health and fuel loneliness for those that view it. It can affect cognitive development and function. It distorts our ideas of sex, and it can promote sexual violence. Now, I can't even imagine the effects we're going to see a few years from now with virtual reality porn, where you can now put on your virtual reality goggles and feel like you're literally in the room with those that are part of these porn scenes. It's just another level where you're no longer just seeing it on a screen. It feels like you're in the act. Now, whether it's pornography or people we encounter throughout the day, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. But man, if we took this seriously, we'd all be walking around with one eye and one hand, wouldn't we? Now, this is hyperbolic language that Jesus is employing to make a point. Uh, and the point is this. Take sacrificial measures with your temptations to sexual sin. Don't flirt with it. Don't play around with it. Don't do nothing. Don't be passive. Gouge out your eye. Cut off your hand. It starts with the eyes. Remember all those legalistic justifications that we can fall into when it comes to our eyes. The eyes are the door to our hearts. What we look at impacts our heart. And Job from the Old Testament, um, some believe Job is the oldest book written in, in the Old Testament. Job knew this truth. He knew Jesus' standard way before the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Now, how do we do this? How do we make a covenant with our eyes not to lust over people? Well, this involves a dying to ourselves. This involves a mortification of the flesh where we put to death our sinful desires. Now, what does this look like with lust? Act blind. Don't look at things that would cause you to sin. Act like you have no hands so you can't do things that would cause you to sin. And in Matthew 18, Jesus adds, cut off your feet to this statement about self-denial. In other words, don't go to places that lead you into sin. Alex actually reminded me of a, a statement that the lead pastor of Coquitlam Alliance Church always says, which is, radically deal with your sin before it radically deals with you. So we need to be culturally maimed if we want to be pure in heart. That means there will be certain movies we don't see that our friends have, exhibitions, shops, and clubs we don't go to that our friends do, perhaps even restaurants we don't eat at that our friends do. What else? Set firm boundaries with members of the opposite sex. I don't go for coffees or one-on-ones with people that are not my wife of the opposite sex. Don't have any unprotected devices in the home if you struggle with pornography. There are a lot of great, um, a lot of great accountability software programs out there that can help. 
go to a recovery group like Freedom Session, a Pure Desire group, or to a counselor. I've actually been through all of these three. I've gone through Freedom Session when I was younger. Pure Desire is a, uh, a Christian parachurch ministry towards this issue and counseling. It is worth the embarrassment and it is worth your ego in the same way that it is worth it to lose an eye or a hand to save your soul and to save your family. So it is worth it to lose some pride and validation to save your soul and your family. The question is, are we willing to endure this ridicule? John Stott says this, of course this teaching runs clean counter to modern standards of permissiveness it is based on the principle that eternity is more important than time and purity than culture. And that any sacrifice is worthwhile in this life if it is necessary to ensure our entry into the next. We have to decide quite simply whether to live for this world or the next, whether to follow the crowd or Jesus Christ. And this is what gets to the heart of the matter. We can gouge out our eye, we can cut off our hand, but these are still external things. The real question is, have we allowed our hearts to be cut to the core? Have our hearts changed? Have we embraced what the Apostle, call, <laughs> Apostle Paul called a circumcision of the heart, a cutting of the heart? Let me read for you what he says about this in Romans chapter 2, uh, verses 26 to 29. He says, so if a man who is uncircumcised, so he's basically speaking about a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, in other words, he, he, he does the heart of what the law is intended for. If he keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. In other words, like what the Pharisees were doing. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's not just about the externals. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so what is Paul getting at? Sounds weird when we're talking about circumcision. But what he's getting at is circumcision was a, a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament of the people of God. All the males would be circumcised. Now, a circumcision of the heart is a sign of the people of God under the new covenant, is that we have given Christ our hearts, right? That we're not doing all these external things like, you know, even things like tithing or serving, things that can like appear like we're doing all the right things, but like where is our heart? Um, and until we have a cutting of the heart, until we have a circumcision of the heart, all these external measures we do, they won't have a lasting effect. A circumcision of the heart is about consecration. It's about the heart of the law. So I want to ask, where is your heart? Does it belong to Jesus? Jesus needs your entire heart. And if you're married... Does your spouse have your entire heart? This is so key. Your spouse deserves and needs your entire heart. That's, that's what the marriage covenant is about. So our heart belongs to our spouse. So don't close off any parts of your heart to your spouse. At a basic level, 
an affair is when one person seeks to meet a need or longing in another person who is not their spouse. And I would argue that the need or longing isn't actually sexual. It's an emptiness in the heart. Porneia is a symptom of a deeper root problem. Yes, sexual immorality is a problem, but it's an indication of an empty and hurting heart. As G.K. Chesterton once said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. There was a study that was done on American soldiers that returned from the Vietnam War. And when the soldiers left the horrors of combat and arrived safely in the United States, 95% of them stopped their addiction to heroin. And the results suggested to researchers that the addiction did not arise from heroin itself but from the needs of the men who use the drug. And leading expert uh, in addiction, Gabor Mate, says, emotional isolation, powerlessness, and stress are exactly the conditions that promote the neurobiology of addiction. Now, doesn't that sound like the last two years we've been through with the pandemic? Our loneliness became real. We realized we didn't have as much power and control as we thought we had and we certainly felt stressed with the fears and complications that arose from COVID-19. Now, where's the hope? Without trying to sound like I'm giving you the Sunday school answer, let me tell you, Jesus is the answer. The answer to our deepest longings and pain is not pornography, a one-night stand, an affair, or even God-honoring sex itself within the marriage covenant. Christ is our lover. The Bible describes Jesus as the bridegroom and the church, his people, as his bride. And he nourishes and he cherishes that bride. He died for that bride. This isn't just a New Testament idea, though. Israel was in covenant with God in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament uses imagery of a marriage to describe this relationship. And we see Israel's unfaithfulness to God over and over again, through idolatry, worship of foreign gods, detestable sins, and forsaking of God's laws. And we even see there's an entire book devoted to portraying this. The book of Hosea serves as a metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. Hosea, who is a prophet of God, is told to marry a, quote, wife of whoredom. This is scripture. And as the story goes, though she continues to commit adultery in her marriage, Hosea remains faithful to the marriage covenant he made with her and continues to love her. This is a picture of how God loves us in spite of our brokenness and our deliberate sin. What does God say to rebellious, adulterous Israel in Hosea? Well, let me read for you Hosea 11, 7 to 9. It says, my people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. I want you to get this. 
Israel's sin, our sin, brings out God's compassion and tenderness. If we have given our lives to Christ, if we are in him, our sin qualifies us to be recipients of his grace. This is Puritan stuff at its finest. Our sin draws out the very heart of Christ toward us. The purer the heart of a person, isn't there desire to help, to relieve, to protect, to comfort someone? But if the heart has been, if the, if the heart has been calloused, if someone's heart isn't tender and pure, they're less willing to help an innocent bystander. But we have a God who has the purest of pure hearts. And when he sees his children turn from him, when he sees them in their pain, his heart is one of compassion and pity and love and comfort. God doesn't put you up for adoption just because you messed up big time. He adopted you. He doesn't divorce you even when you're unfaithful. Christ married you. And think of Hosea. And I want to conclude with a story from this week. On Thursday, there was a lady who phoned the church and asked if there was a pastor who she could talk to and have pray for her. So I thought about putting the phone call off so I could work on this sermon. But I gave her a call, and she proceeded to tell me that she felt she could not be forgiven of her sin. She explained that she had chased sex for over 10 years and believed that she had worn out God's grace and forgiveness. And so I just walked her through some of the scriptures and said, hey, you know, we cannot out-sin the grace of God. I told her, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us of all unrighteousness. I explained to her that Jesus said of the very soldiers who stripped him naked, beat him, and crucified him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I told her that in John 8, we see the woman caught in adultery brought before Jesus by the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're ready to stone her to death. What does Jesus say? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, and one by one they drop their stones to the ground. Jesus comes up to her, probably kneels down as she's laying down in the dirt and says, where are they? Do, you need, do any of them condemn you? She says, no one, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so as I explained that to this lady, she fought me on it. She says, well, that's it. The woman was supposed to sin no more. We aren't supposed to abuse grace, right? And I told her, yes, you're right. In Romans 6, Paul writes, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, Meganoita. That's Greek for megano. It means by no means. By no means are we to continue in sin that grace may abound. But God's grace can even cover the sin of abusing grace. His grace is greater. His grace is deeper. His grace is wider. It surpasses our understanding. Just read Ephesians 3, 18 to 19. It surpasses our sin. I told her, I have abused God's grace, indulging in sin, even the sin of pornea, because I took God's grace as a license to sin in my own life. But praise God, 
Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, according to the book of Hebrews. He died once and for all. Every sin, past, present, and future, was laid upon him at the cross. And because he was both sinless and eternal, his sacrifice is perfect. At the cross, it was finished. And finished means finished. Jesus doesn't have to get up there again, even when we continue to sin. So every sin we commit has already been forgiven. It's just, will we receive it? Will we receive that forgiveness? Now, we can go one of two ways when we're in sin, and this is important, is yes, God is forgiving, and his tenderness is towards you if you are repentant and if you confess. But I also don't want to ignore the end of this passage where it was talking about it's better that, you know, you cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And hell is something we don't really like to talk about. And Jesus had so much to say on it. His wrath is against those that aren't in him. His invitation is one of mercy and love and compassion. But in the same way that he who has a pure heart um, wants to help those who are victims, for him to be holy and righteous and loving, it's consistent with his character to punish evil. It somehow has to be dealt with. He dealt with it at the cross, but there's an invitation for people to come to him and to say, yes, I receive your grace. I choose to receive that Christ has died in my place for my sins so I don't have to, but there are some who will reject his grace. And against them, unfortunately, what we see in Scripture is God's wrath is against them. And so, we can go one of two ways when we're in sin in our shame and our fleshly craving for pleasure, we can continue in the path of sin and allow it to harden our hearts to the point where we turn away from God like King Saul and Pharaoh. Or we can turn toward God and allow him an opportunity to love us at our lowest points, like King David in Psalm 51, when he committed adultery, murdered the woman's husband, and then lied about it. This is the very guy who wrote Psalm 24 about how the pure, the innocent, and the truthful shall enter God's presence, and yet he, was, he missed all of those three. It is God's grace and kindness that leads us to repentance. God has compassion for you. I'm reminded of the father of the prodigal son. Alex brought this up in prayer before we began our service this morning. The prodigal son... He goes, he wastes all of his inheritance. You know, he blows all the money that he's been given. He's like eating with the pigs. He's living recklessly. Um, he's probably involved in sexual sin. It says he comes to his senses and he decides to return home. And as he's walking back to his father's estate, he thinks he's never gonna welcome me back as a son. You know, I, I'd be happy if I could just be a servant to him. And what, is, what does a father do? You all know it. When he sees him from a distance, he's probably got the binoculars out. He, like, hikes up his, you know, his toga, whatever we want to call it, and just, he runs. Like, he sprints. Probably would have set a world record in the Summer Olympics to go find his son, to embrace him, to hug him, to welcome him back in. What do they do? kill the fattened calf, they have a feast. 
puts a robe on him, brings out a ring. My son who was lost is now found. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. We're all in need of repentance. And so, this morning, as we come to the communion table, we're going to confess our sin to God, remembering that it is finished, and that we're only made right with God through the cross, by his grace, and through his spirit, he's purifying us as we submit to him. And so we take simple bread, simple juice, bread, a symbol of Christ's body that was given for us, and the juice representing his blood that was shed for us. And so take time to reflect, confess to God, but for every, for every look we take at our, our sin, we've got to take 10 looks at the cross. It is finished. The question is, will you turn towards him? He's tenderly waiting for you. He has compassion and pity. After that, when the service concludes, I want to encourage you to confess your sin to another person. So this may be someone trusted that you know here. It could be, maybe it's tomorrow, you phone up a friend. Um, and as a way of fighting against our sexual sin, as a way of cutting off our hand or gouging out our eye, it's going to be painful to do this, to confess our sin. But it's an antidote to pride. <laughs> it's also an antidote to isolation, where we feel like I must be the only one. We can have another brother or sister in Christ proclaim the gospel over us, pray for us, remind us of God's grace. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. There's actually something like that helps heal us as we confess to a brother and a sister. And this is part of the pathway towards having a pure heart, of having no secrets. And this is what the community of God is for, is not to bring judgment when there's confession of sin, but to, to link arms with that person, to walk with them, to bear one another's burdens, as Paul says in Galatians 6. To remind them of God's goodness and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be with you to help on this journey along the way. So, spend some time in community.